Good morning. Welcome, everybody. I'm Tia, and I'm the outreach coordinator here. And I just want to welcome you to church. Um, why are you here? That's something we maybe should ask ourselves now and then. We come to worship for sure and learn. But maybe another purpose is to focus on something a little bit outside ourselves. Sometimes that's looking at the pew next to you and talking to somebody and finding out what's going on in their lives as opposed to yours. And sometimes what church does is it helps us focus outwardly on our community. And we're going to ask you to do that on Serve Sunday. So that's coming up April 24th in two weeks. And Serve Sunday is the Sunday where instead of sitting in here in the pews, we go out to the community. So in January, we actually were in here packing meals for kids around the world. This time we're going to ask a little bit more of you, and we're going to go out to have four different events going on. So some people, about five people, are going to be at the Senior Center. About ten people are going to be at Love, Inc. Food Pantry doing a deep clean, moving pallets, stocking shelves. And the rest of us are going to have two different activities at the Bay of Burlington at the rehab center there. Um, some people will be inside. The kids can be inside making sun catchers out of beads with the residents and bringing some cheer um, to their window there that they can hang those in their window. The rest of us will be outside at the Bay. Um, bring your rakes, bring your pruning shears, bring your brooms. Um, and some of us might even be bringing hammers to help rebuild some raised bed gardens that they have um, that they can wheel in a wheelchair actually up to the garden. So um, there's a lot going to be going on on Serve Sunday. Start thinking about it. It's going to be a little more effort and a little bit more outside your comfort zone maybe than just coming here and packing meals. But that's coming up in two weeks. Um, if you want to learn more about that or sign up, which we'd really love you to do, go to My Life Bridge. And you can find um, upcoming events at My Life Bridge. It's, <clears throat> excuse me, Life Bridge, mylifebridge.church. And you can um, find the sermons and devotional audio there. You can do online giving and sign up to get email and text alerts so you don't forget about things as well. And we won't spam you with other stuff. Um, also, thank you for giving and supporting our mission. Um, besides keeping the lights on here, it's going to help us do things like Serve Sunday um, and serve our community as well. And don't forget, we have started Holy Week. This Friday is Good Friday. Services here will be at 5 p.m. So don't forget, we're in that week. Um, and with that, let's welcome up John Adams to bring us our message today. Tia. Woo. I think that was the closest I've ever been to leaving Tia hanging up here. I went to get the kids, looked at the clock, I was like, oh no, I had to like run over here. So, well, a little flustered, but we made it. I'm back. Okay. Uh, so we asked for a service. Uh, this morning, Savannah and I woke up, and I don't know how we got on this conversation, but I thought it was a funny idea. Um, so I want to take a quick survey. Does anybody have, as their like morning alarm, the Mendisa Good Morning song? Well, there's an idea for you, okay? We were talking about it. I don't know how we got onto that, but I was like, if that were me, I would wake up so angry <laughs> to that song. It's so happy. It's so joyful. It's a great song. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm a total grouch, so I don't want to hear that. And we put it on this morning, and yeah. My daughter Ellie slept in. She was having a rough day. She wasn't having it either. So 
She's a little like me in that. That was funny. There's an idea for you. Morning alarm. Okay, um, I want to just clarify a couple of things. Last week, I, I, I misspoke on a couple of things. Number one, um, I, <laughs> I think I said the Epic of Gilgamesh. I totally meant the Enuma Elish, okay? They rhyme, they get jumbled in my head, and I know you guys were like, dude, oh my gosh. You guys are really upset about that. But I just want to clarify it. Um, and secondly, I, I said uh, the term oriental at one point. And I wasn't aware that for some that can be an offensive term, so I do apologize for saying that. All right, um, this week, let's pray, and we'll jump into the sermon. Let's do that. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this church, for our community, Lord, for how we can gather together and worship you, uh, hear from your word, submit ourselves to your word, to the truth, and Lord, live our lives according it. Lord, pursue goodness as you define it. So, Lord, I pray uh, over our time together that our, our minds would be centered on you, Lord, that you would direct our heart or direct our motives towards you and our passions and desires to desire the kingdom above all else. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, as Tia said already, this week is Holy Week, so we have Good Friday service you know, leading into Easter Sunday. Um, I encourage you guys this week to really lean into the story, uh, lean into the story of uh, Jesus final few days before the crucifixion and the resurrection to, to perhaps read it, uh, read the <clears throat> John 13 through 17, uh, Jesus and his uh, conversation with his disciples there at the Last Supper. It's just beautiful. Uh, says some of the most important things in his life and ministry there. So dive into that this week. Fast, pray, um, do what God's leading you to to celebrate Holy Week and to emphasize what Jesus did on the cross for you this week. That said, admittedly, this sermon is going to be a bit of a bummer, all right? I'm sorry. Uh, we're we're going to talk about the like hard stuff and our like sinful nature so that next week we can celebrate uh, at Easter Sunday and celebrate what Christ has done in us and how he has given us his resurrection life. But to do that, we have to kind of emphasize and point out how we don't have this resurrection life in and of ourselves and how great of a gift it is that Jesus does give us his life. So we're going to, yeah, we're going to kind of focus on the, the negative stuff today just to prepare yourself mentally. And then next week, we'll focus on the positive and celebrate. Okay, so this campaign that we just started last week, we're calling it The Pursuit. We're talking about healthy personal growth in a self-absorbed world. So we want to avoid the one ditch of just ignoring this completely, ignoring personal growth, understanding ourselves, knowing who we are, knowing what we're pursuing and striving for out of who we are. Uh, one ditch is to just ignore that completely. The other ditch is to dive like fully into it and then just become completely self-absorbed and become super selfish and missing the big picture of the kingdom. In our culture, we often hear phrases like uh, self-awareness, self-improvement, and how those are super valuable. We hear things like, be yourself. We hear things like, be true to yourself. When somebody lost who they are and then found it again, and they're confident in the way that they live, the decisions that they make, and their ethical choices, and all of that stuff, we say that they have found themselves. And that is, I think, the highest good in a secular culture. In a secular world outside of 
Scripture outside of the transcendent, outside of God, that is the highest good. What we usually mean by that in the secular culture is to simply kind of discover some of our tendencies, discover our personality, who we are, the things that we like, the things that we're good at, and then be confident in living those out and pursuing things that are in line with who we are. And I think that's the highest good in a secular culture. For the Christian, though, we have to take it a step further. For the Christian, we have to ask simply, is my perception of who I am true? One, that is true according to Scripture, because if we have a false perception of who we are, then what we choose to pursue and what we choose to do out of that will never leave, leave us satisfied. Does that make sense? So if we have a false picture of who we really are, and that is true according to Scripture and God's Word, then what we choose to pursue and our self-awareness and personal growth will be completely distorted if we don't have an accurate picture of who we are. So we're spending these first few weeks discovering who we really are according to Scripture, some of those baseline truths that we have to keep in mind as we talk about personal growth. And then uh, for the rest of the campaign, we'll talk more about those things that we pursue uh, how do we pursue them based on who we are that will truly bring us uh, contentment, peace, satisfaction? Because we've all heard stories. Like Michael Jordan was my favorite athlete growing up. Right? My favorite, like, yeah, I, I modeled my game after Michael Jordan. And then I realized that I'm not very good and he can jump really high. And I can't. And that the fadeaway shot is a terrible shot uh, because it's really hard to get good at. Which, by the way, Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time, okay? Like, not even close. If you bring up LeBron, I'm coming hard at you, okay? Because that is not true at all. He's the best. But anyways, Michael Jordan reached the pinnacle of his career. Guys like Tiger Woods did the same. They reached the pinnacle of their, career, they, or of their profession. Nobody better than them in their profession. And then when they retire, you see and you watch their life and they're still not satisfied. Like Michael Jordan, there's plenty of evidence of him continuing to, to gamble, continuing to pursue competition because he always feels as if he has to be better at something than the other person. So he's constantly driving towards that. Tiger Woods, there's a great write-up. It was years ago. I think it was like 2016. ESPN did a great write-up of Tiger Woods and his story. Um, and same thing. He, he reaches the top of his profession and he finds himself completely unsatisfied. And he's still searching for more. And so we know these stories. We've heard hundreds of stories of celebrities who have reached uh, everything that we think we desire, are pursuing, and they're still looking for something more. Why is that? Because the things that they think they, they desire and so they pursue, they find them to not be in line with the truth of who they are and the truth of creation as God has created it. We have to have this basis of who we are and then pursue the things that God calls us to pursue out of it. Because without that, we will always be left wanting more. St. Augustine famously said, how can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. John Calvin said that our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves, but these are connected together by so many ties. It's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and give birth, gives birth to the other. So we have to know ourselves as God defines us and then know what to pursue 
out of that that really truly leads to a whole uh, life, as Jesus calls us to. So last week we talked about how uh, our identity is two sides of the same coin, that we are both created in the image of God, called to rule, steward creation, which really elevates us among creation as humans. But the other side of that coin is that we are dust and ashes, (laughs) that we do not have life within ourselves apart from the gift of God. We are mortal beings. So we are royalty, in a sense, called to rule creation in God's place here on earth under his authority. But also, we are mortal. And we have to hold those two in tension. And if we don't, we'll miss a big picture of who we are. Today, I'm talking about how we are fallen creatures. How we have this tendency not just, uh, not just to make bad decisions, but these desires within us for sin and for evil and to not follow God's way. I told you this is going to be a bit of a bummer, but I think it's true. Occasionally, I'll have this idea in my head of a sermon, and I read a quote, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so good. says it way better than I could say it. Usually it's from C.S. Lewis, but... Um, Today, it's from Dallas Willard. So, <laughs> Dallas Willard, he was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California, and he's Christian. He wrote lots of books on spiritual formation and Christian philosophy. He was deeply concerned throughout his life uh, of watching the neglect of spiritual formation in the life of the Christian. He wrote a book called The Great Omission, right, and how we omit the part of the Great Commission to teach others to follow everything that Jesus commanded us to. Fantastic book. Anyways, in this book, The Renovation of the Heart, he writes this. The the initial move towards Christ-likeness, that is, the Christian's desire to pursue Christ-likeness, to be like Jesus, to understand ourselves, and to make ourselves more like Christ, cannot be towards self-esteem. Because of confusion about what self-esteem means, and because realistically, I love this line, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. We're all in serious trouble. We have to start from this assumption, this baseline assumption, that we can't just focus on building, boosting our own self-esteem. We have to start from the assumption that we are fallen, and that I am not okay, and you are not okay in and of yourself. We're all in serious trouble. Self-esteem in such a situation will only breed self-deception and frustration. We're saying as if we, as Christians, don't focus, uh, don't start in the right places and just try to boost our own self-esteem, we only deceive ourselves more. We're only more vulnerable to the deception of the enemy. And it will leave us completely frustrated. For the realities of our soul will still be what they are and will still have the consequences for evil that they naturally do. Regardless of what we or others may say to pump ourselves up, and really to conceal and deny who we are. A high opinion of ourselves will only make those consequences more difficult to deal with. He helpfully uh, uses this illustration elsewhere in this chapter, and he says that if we only focus on self-esteem, basically, and, and not dealing with the the actual cause and the actual nature of who we are and our sinful nature, 
We become like farmers who diligently plant crops but cannot uh, admit the existence of weeds and insects and can only think to pour on more fertilizer. So if we don't actually understand our own sinful nature, we're kind of like a farmer who cannot admit the existence of the weeds within the garden. And so all we do is pour on more fertilizer and we just boost our own self-esteem, which actually grows the weeds more. So we grow our sinful nature more and our pride increases more and more as we pour on more and more fertilizer and the weeds will eventually choke out the plant and the good of the discipleship to Christ. So that kind of sets the stage for Genesis chapter 3. All right, in Genesis chapter 3, we read what's called the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. So last week we were in Genesis 1, a little bit in Genesis 2. Um, Today, we're going to kind of fast forward to Genesis chapter 3. Quick word, a couple of quick words on this before we begin. Number one, if you're like me, I I grew up in the church and I always read Genesis chapter 3 just on a macro level. And I said, just to mean like, this is how sin entered the world and this is why we have a sinful nature, just from like a theological perspective. Like this is how it happened, right? I would encourage us today to read Genesis chapter three, not from that lens, because that's certainly there, but not through that lens only, but through the lens of this is me. So like Eve talking to the serpent, we put ourselves in the place of Eve. Like, Like this is me. This is how I am tempted This is how I distort God's word. And this is how Satan appeals to my inner nature, my will, my desires for evil and how I give into it. All right, so see yourself there. Don't think macro level, think me. And then secondly, for some of you, if you're not uh, familiar with church and church life, and when you read Genesis 1 through 3, especially chapter 3 here, you may be tempted to just like write this all off once you see a talking serpent. And you're like, eh, does he really believe in a talking serpent? Okay. You're like, that's not it. There are a couple of different ways of interpreting this text, and I think both are acceptable within the Christian tradition. I'm not dying on this hill, right? You can read this as literal events, the things that actually happen, and I think that's fair. You can also read these as kind of like a poem, kind of like a story that's meant to uh, articulate and teach some spiritual truths. That didn't literally happen like this, but is meant to teach some spiritual truths. If you have more questions on that, whoa, ring on the podium. If you have more questions on that, like we can talk later. Please email me. I'd love to talk with you about it. But if I go into that too much now, I will never get to the actual point of the text. Okay, <laughs> So that's a, yeah, that's a big rabbit trail to chase. So not going there. But don't write this off. If you're like talking serpent, mm, stay with me. All right, okay, so let's dive into the text. This is after Adam and Eve have been created, called by God to rule, steward creation, all of that. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Okay, highlight that in your Bible. This is one of Satan's primary temptations for us, is to question the words of God to sow doubt in our minds as to what God really said. And as we'll see, he's actually quite effective in his deception here. And this is the whole point. Moses wrote this, and this is what Moses is trying to say. Know God's word so well. Did God really say you must not eat, any tr- eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Okay, this is hearkening back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, what God had commanded them. And the first thing that we see here is Eve actually begins distorting God's word. She only says we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. God said in verse 17, you may surely eat fruit. Subtle. Okay, these three are going to be very subtle. Uh, but in the Hebrew, it's, uh, the word eat is just repeated twice. God repeats it twice. You may like eat, eat is what he's saying. So when he says you may surely eat, it emphasizes the certainty of the action. So it's not just, it's like more emphasized. The you can surely eat. Some translations say freely eat. So what Eve is doing here is minimizing the blessing of God. Subtly. Saying we, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but she's not saying that we can certainly eat or we can surely eat. And it's going to become clear that this, is, that this is intended to be brought out in just a second. I'll show you. This is what Moses means. So she minimizes God's blessing. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, not we may surely or certainly eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it. God never said that. God never said you must not touch it. Eve adds that to God's word. She exaggerates the prohibition. We call this legalism today. <laughs> Adding rules to God's rules. And we are prone to doing this all the time. Thinking that we are more holy or we are doing better because we have added these rules that we don't, that we don't violate. But God never said it. So she minimizes the blessing and now she exaggerates the prohibition. You must not touch it. Not just don't eat it, don't touch it too. Or you will die. Eve again distorts God's word. God said you will surely die. Same as eat, emphasizing the certainty of it. Uh, you will die, die, God says. You will surely die, certainly die. No doubt about it. Eve minimizes or reduces the punishment here by not emphasizing the certainty of what God said. And now, to just make it clear that if you missed it, this is what is meant by this passage in verse 4. The serpent says, you will not certainly die. He says, you will not die, die. He knows God's word better than Eve does. He, he quotes God better than she does. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, but he's using it to distort, to deceive, and to manipulate and twist what God really said. <clears throat> For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. As we saw last week, the humans were already created in the image of God, but the temptation is to not be content with that status that God has given us but to usurp God's authority and to take his authority for ourselves. So we want to be God in that sense of having the ability to determine for ourselves what is good and evil. We don't need God to tell us what is good and evil. We will determine that for ourselves. That is the temptation at play here. Because if you're like me and you've read this your entire life growing up, you're like, isn't it good that they would know good and evil? Isn't that a good thing? Especially when they're called to steward and rule creation, you should probably know that, right? <laughs> Why is that bad? That they want to know good and evil. The temptation here is that they would know good and evil apart from God. Subtle distinction. But they know good and evil by uh, the fruit 
and the serpent's lies, and that's how they would determine what is good and evil, not as God has defined it. So the temptation is to go beyond what God says and determine good and evil for themselves and to determine good and evil in their timing. I don't, I don't even think it's assumed. I think it's, I think it's quite clear. that uh, What Moses is saying here is God is going to teach them good and evil. Because remember, this is the Israelites going into the promised land when Moses originally wrote this for them. And we're going to read that in just a second. God has to, told them what is good and evil through the law, but instead of following the law for the Israelites going into the promised land, they are going to be tempted to determine good and evil for themselves, apart from God, from other cultures, from other religions, just on their own. In the book of Judges, one of the most incriminating passages in there, and just to emphasize how far away they had gone from following the law of the Lord, says that, Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That is the complete anti-God state for the people of Israel, for us today, in the church. To do what is right in our own eyes and not follow God's law, God's ways. All right. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, so now why does this appeal to our sinful nature? And how does this temptation appeal to us? He's getting out of here. It's not just ideas in our head as part of it, but it appeals to more of our baser instincts. So Eve sees that it was good for food. So that's like the stomach and the seed of our baser instincts of, uh, of gluttony in this sense. But just those cravings, those innate desires that we have. It was pleasing to the eye. So it was beautiful. So that appeals to our, our, our desire for beauty and our lust. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. Again, our mind, emphasizing our desire to gain knowledge apart from God and his word, to know good and evil on our own apart from what God has revealed to us in his word. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So the temptation works on us like this. Again, because we have distorted God's word, we don't know what God's word actually says and commit to following it and following his word. And because it just appeals to these innate instincts that we have, these desires that we have within ourselves to uh, know what is good, know what is pleasing to the eye, and is desirable for gaining wisdom apart from God. Okay, so uh, I think what this foreshadows and corresponds to is the people of Israel who are going into the promised land, Moses had just delivered to them the law. And here in Deuteronomy 30, uh, as Moses is nearing the end of his life, is what he, before he passes on his authority to Joshua, he says this to the people of Israel. And you'll see the same themes at play in the Genesis 3 story as, in, as Moses is articulating here to the people. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Okay, so like life and death, good and evil, having a tree the knowledge of good and evil, life, death, you will die, die, get it? Tree of life, same themes. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. Okay, multiply, keeping God's commandments. You've distorted God's word. Live and multiply, fulfilling the creation mandate of Genesis chapter one, making these connections. And the Lord your God will bless you 
okay, the blessing that God gave them in the Garden of Eden, in the land, so promised land corresponds to the Eden land that you are entering to take possession of. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Die, die, right? You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. So just as they were, Adam and Eve were booted out of Eden, he's saying if you do not follow God's commands and God's laws, you will be sent away from the land. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Curse from Genesis 3, which we didn't, if we were to keep reading, we would have come to. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. And choosing life here is choosing to obey God's commands, following his ways. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, there it is, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So obedience to God's word is what he has in mind here. Band, you guys can come and get set up. So here's the big idea. I told you it's a real bummer. Don't trust yourself. (laughs) Just like Eve listening to the serpent who had distorted God's word and she had distorted God's word and had attempted to take the knowledge of good and evil for herself. And Adam did the same, apart from obeying God's word. And as the temptation emphasizes her, her willingness to go along with it, seeing that it was good for food, appealing to her baser instincts, desiring to know the truth apart from God's word, Don't trust yourself. We have these basic instincts within us that when we think of uh, determining our personal self-growth, determining who we are, determining what we should pursue in life and what we should give our life to, don't trust yourself outside of God's word because there are baser instincts within you. There is a Satan who is tempting you and appealing to those that these deceptions are very subtle and they can creep in very easily. We may think that we are doing good and pursuing the kingdom and doing what God wants us to, but unless it is actually defined by the kingdom, a part of the fullness of life that Christ came to bring us, then we are deceiving ourselves and we are very prone to this and we're very good at deceiving ourselves. And Satan is very good at what he does and appealing to our sinful nature. So let's pray, and then I'll come up and apply it later. Lord, we thank you for your word that guides us into this truth. We don't want to be people who just focus on self-esteem and positive thinking apart from the truth of who we really are. We don't want to just pour fertilizer in the garden of weeds. But we want to have a true concept of who we are knowing that we are prone to sin and how desperately we are in need of your word and your truth to guide us. That, Lord, we are so easily led astray to pursue things that are not according to your kingdom. So, Lord, would you guide us in that? Help us to commit to finding truth in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.
you guys need prayer while we're singing, Michael and Kathleen are in the back and they would love to pray with you. Thank you, Lord, that we can sing of your goodness. That, Lord, we can point to you, we can reflect, we can think, meditate on your goodness. That, Lord, as we look at the sinfulness of our own nature and ourselves, we know that there is good in you. So, Lord, we look to you. We trust in you to define for us what is good, what is true, what is righteous. We don't take that for ourselves. Lord, we are fully dependent on you and your revelation to teach us what is true and what is good. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. Our big idea is don't trust yourself. To be clear, this is kind of like a two-part sermon. You got to come back next week. Next week will be much more positive, much more encouraging. But I think what we have to do is get to the, the depth of depravity of the human person to understand the gift of abundant life that God gives us in Jesus. So We have to understand just how great of a gift it is and how great of a transformation it is to have the abundant life in Christ. And if we don't realize how depraved we are, then it just kind of becomes like a small gift or like a small transformation. It's, it's minor. No, no, no. It, it's a whole person, inner life transformation that Jesus gives us. So we have to emphasize how depraved we are apart from God. <clears throat> so when it comes to it's personal growth and what we're pursuing with our life, what we're giving our life to. We have to begin from this assumption that we are sinful in our nature, we are fallen, we are vulnerable to temptation, to lies and deception. You're not okay, as Dallas Willard says. <laughs> you are not good in and of yourself. You do not know in and of yourself, what is good and what brings the abundant life that Jesus promises in and of yourself. And you are not free to define that for yourself. We don't trust in ourselves. This produces a healthy skepticism, I think, of our motives, of our thinking, all of it. We have to have this healthy skepticism because in our nature that we are sinful. And so part of, the, part of the trouble of this, of preaching this text is I can't just give you like a, a simple do this, don't do this. This ambition, this passion that you have is rooted in the truth of God's word or this passion isn't. The only thing I can give you is know God's word really well and really get into prayer and seek the spirit of God to reveal these lies that you have come to believe or these self-deceptions that have become so prominent and have taken over your heart. Because again, if we simply just boost our self-esteem, we're just putting fertilizer in a field of weeds. Because like Eve, these temptations of the devil, they really appeal to our sinful nature. And especially in our consumeristic culture, where we are bombarded with images of the good life. 
We're not sold on the effectiveness of a product or how this product works and how it will help you. No, we're, we're sold on this is the good life. And so we have these undercurrents that we have already been formed in of what the good life means. And so we have to be transformed into the image of Christ to know what the abundant life that Jesus promises actually looks like. And the only way we know that is through his word. Because again, Scripture doesn't say, and oftentimes it doesn't really tell us, take this job, buy this house, uh, make this retirement investment, like retire at this age. It doesn't say those things. But what it does do is it articulates for us what the good life is. The abundant life in Jesus. And Jesus, who modeled it perfectly, he died at a young age. <laughs> As a martyr. Paul was pretty impoverished most of his life. <laughs> he was a tent maker who traveled around the world and never really had a permanent home. Sharing the gospel of Jesus. John was exiled to the island of Patmos to live out the rest of his days alone in solitary. solitary. And, and those guys were fulfilled. By all of our standards of success, they failed miserably. Even the churches that they planted, the movements that they started, they didn't take off right away. It took time. There was rock. There was rocky. If you read the, Paul's, the letters of Paul, they were rocky. Those churches weren't perfect. <laughs> but they were living the abundant life of Christ. So it gives us a picture of it. It also tells us who we're becoming, primarily. Scripture teaches us who, what we're, who we are to become. And if we find that the things that we are pursuing in life are changing us to become something that doesn't model and represent the fruit of the Spirit, that is not the abundant life of Christ either. Maybe we shouldn't be pursuing those things, having those goals, having those visions. So we have to have this healthy skepticism of ourself, of who we are and what we are pursuing. And the positive side of this is to fear God and to obey his word. Know his word and don't distort it like Eve and obey his word. One of my life verses is Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. So don't trust yourself. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, the seat of, of your will and your desires and your passion, what you're pursuing in your life. Trust the Lord with all of that. Lean not on your own understanding. You don't know better than God. I feel so silly saying that, but I think it's important for us to actually settle in our minds that we don't know better than God, so we have to turn to his word to determine what is right and good and true. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Notice how much this proverb is emphasizing. Don't trust yourself. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. John Calvin, in his Institutes, he wrote, the surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. The surest source of destruction to men is to obey themselves. The implication is to obey themselves instead of God. To decide what is 
good and evil without God. And again, as I said earlier, sometimes somebody else just says it way better than I could. Dallas strikes again in the renovation of the heart. He says, on the fear of God, whoa, I didn't even know that was there. <laughs> fear of God, the proverb tells us, is the beginning of wisdom, in Proverbs 9.10. It says, one begins to get smart. <laughs> now, this isn't like a, uh, an angry dude who just graduated from seminary who's real mad on Twitter saying this. This is like <laughs> an elderly, fatherly, grandfatherly philosophy professor saying this. Guy who's very calm, very peaceful and loving and kind in the way that he communicates. He says, one begins to get smart when he or she fears being crosswise with God. Fear of not doing what he wants and not being as he requires. <laughs> with all the love in my heart and as I think Dallas is describing this, the fatherly love and desire for you to fear God in a wholesome way. We begin to get smart when he or she fears being crosswise with God. Fear of not doing what he wants and not being as he requires. Fear is the anticipation of harm. The intelligent person recognizes that his or her well-being lies in being in harmony with God and what God is doing in the kingdom. When we fear God, it produces us this healthy reverence for him. And so we fear being on the opposite end of God, but also not being in harmony with him and what God is doing in his kingdom. So if we fear God, then all of what we are pursuing, all that we are desiring is God's kingdom and what he is doing in the world. That has to be at the heart of what we pursue. And I love this description of the fear of God. He says, God is not mean, but he is dangerous. <laughs> Rachel Knapp reminded me on the way out of C.S. Lewis, the way he described this, he said, Aslan is not a tame lion, but he is good. God is not mean, but he is dangerous. It is the same with other great forces he has placed in reality. Electricity and nuclear power, for example, are not mean, but they are dangerous. One who does not, in a certain sense, worry about God simply isn't smart. So we do, in a certain sense, have to worry about, is our, our passions the thing that we're striving for? Uh, have we been deceived into believing that we are following God and serving God and these are for the kingdom of God? We, we have to do the hard work of unpacking that and saying, are they really? Or is it really for my own pleasure, luxury, self-advancement, my own purposes? Or is it really in accordance with the kingdom of God? Am I becoming the type of person that reflects the fruit of the Spirit? That reflects the abundant life that Jesus promised through what I'm pursuing or am I not? And again, the self-deception here is toxic. It's subtle, but it is toxic. We deceive ourselves so often into thinking that this pursuit that I have, this desire for personal growth is really for the kingdom. 
But when we get alone with God and we pray and we seek him, we find and we uncover layers, layers and layers of self-deception, pride, selfishness, for lack of a better way of saying it, evil. <laughs> Even in the church, this happens. Last two years have been really hard. <laughs> For pretty much every pastor that I've heard talk to, that I've talked to. Over the course of my sabbatical, this was, this was a big part of it. I was uncovering the layers of self-deception, where I thought what I was doing here was for the kingdom, was for good, and there's elements of truth to that, but deep down, there was much more to my pride, my selfishness. I had attached my identity to this thing. It is a painful process. And it begins with a healthy skepticism of why are we pursuing what we are pursuing? And on the other end of it, you know yourself so you can know God more. And you can pursue the abundant life that Christ calls us to. Because we may think that what we're pursuing is the abundant life, but oh my goodness, so much of the culture's images in our consumeristic world about what the abundant life looks like, we have deceived ourselves into thinking that that's what it is. And it's because we also have a false picture of who we are. And we forget to approach our personal growth, the things that we are pursuing with healthy skepticism, knowing that we deceive ourselves. And so we need to fear God and obey his word. Obey his word in the sense of doing what he calls us to, but also being who he has called us to be. And if we find ourselves as we pursue something, us not becoming the type of person that exemplifies the fruit of the spirit, perhaps we're pursuing the wrong thing. So I want to invite us to just take a moment here to reflect. Do you fear God? Do you hold him in the healthy reverence and fear of being crosswise with him, knowing that the abundant life really comes when we align ourselves to his word, to his kingdom, to his values, to becoming the type of people who he has called us to be? I want, to exa I want you to examine your habit of reading scripture. When was the last time scripture really challenged you to change your thinking or your behavior? Do you read scripture against yourself, as Bonhoeffer says, or for yourself? Do we approach scripture to shed light on our sin and to instruct us, or do we approach it to just affirm us in what we already think? I'm gonna invite you to just pray this prayer. Just close your eyes and pray this with me. Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.
Lord, we pray that your spirit would search us, know our hearts, see if there's any wicked way in us. We pray that you would produce in us a fear, a reverence for your holiness, to know, God, you are not mean, but you are dangerous. And it is dangerous for us as unholy, sinful people to come into your presence. The Lord produce in us a healthy, a healthy skepticism of our heart, of our motives. That Lord, we hold we hold ourselves up to the truth of your word. God, we don't want to define what is good and evil, what we should pursue, what we shouldn't pursue. In and of ourselves, that is the oldest sin in the book. But Lord, we want to obey your word. We want to follow you. We don't want to trust in ourselves. We want to trust in you. And what you say is the abundant life. That's what we want to live, Jesus even if it doesn't conform to the cultural values, to the images that we have of what the good life looks like. Lord, do that work in our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together. If you need prayer, there's prayer available in the back.